Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode four of the Lucas and Zach podcast. I'm your host, Lucas, and uh, with me is Zach. How are you doing tonight, Zach? Um, I'm doing good. I'm discovering five seconds of that show. I'm woefully unprepared and looked at nothing that we normally should look at. So <laughs> normal me. <laughs> All right. And we have a very special guest today. Uh, someone who loves this movie as much as we do. Uh, just made some air, you know, some air quotation marks. He doesn't want to call it special. Uh, Paul Yama is here. How are you doing, Paul? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm doing great. Um, I just, you know, really love to talk about Saving Mr. Banks. So I'm excited for this episode for sure. Um, Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to tell you, we're talking about Mr. Rogers today. So, uh, Ooh, uh, um, well, you can just bring you in just, the next guest. You can, you can just pause for like, a, you know, a couple hours. You can just bring in the next guest. It's fine. We, oh, we don't have another guest. We're not that big well. of an ocean. We're stuck with you. All right, let's see what okay, you do. Anyway. I'm your next guest. Hello. I'm Paul's Paul brother, Lincoln. Paul. Wow, the twin Pauls. This is wonderful. That's now, parenting. Do not name both your twins, Paul. So come on. <laughs> that, would end up, that would end up terribly. You'd never know which one you're looking for. Um, we're going to start the show as we always start the show, which is talking about the last movie we watched or logged on Letterboxd. Paul, why don't you hit us with the last movie you've logged on Letterboxd? Uh, yeah, so it's actually, it's funny. We, um, we were texting about this movie yesterday because I was listening to the soundtrack and I decided to watch it today. Uh, last movie I logged is Your Name, uh, which is a 2016 animated film directed by Makoto Shinkai. It's a Japanese animated film about two teenagers, a boy and a girl, who one day wake up and suddenly they're in each other's bodies and they don't know why and they have to figure out what's going on. Um, it's this unfurling tale of um, mystery and sci-fi and it's like got a lot of different elements. I think it's terrific. It's like one of my favorite movies ever. It's like one of you know one of my kind of go-to comfort movies. It's got an incredible soundtrack. Like that's kind of what spurred me um, watching it today. Actually, was I was listening to it yesterday. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a movie I, I love a lot. It's a movie I recommend to a lot of people. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just it's great. It's a movie I could put on any day, any time. Absolutely. I have not seen this film. Uh, you were telling me I should watch it, and I will uh, get on that. Zach, have you seen this film? Yes, because I'm not a Philistine like you are. Uh, it's an enjoyable movie, and me and Paul are better people than you. You should watch it. I know. All right, that's. I'm not going to argue. Uh, Zach, what's the last movie you've logged on Letterman? Um, I so I, I was all set to like lie to make myself sound cool, but I have such a deep sense of guilt that will harm me the rest of life. So I got to be honest, and I'm going to spend five seconds on it. My last movie I logged was Back to the Future. It's Back to the Future. You know where it is. The second to last movie I logged that I would have lied is uh, Nomad in the footsteps of Bruce Chatwin. Who's Bruce Chatwin? I didn't really know. But what I did know is that this is a Warner Herzog documentary, which I, I watch all of them. Some Are we going to get away with this, like, totally cheating and throwing away the concept of this segment to just talk yeah. about it? Would you, would you rather me talk about Back to the Future or Warner Herzog? It's what you it would want, certainly go quicker if you <laughs> talked about Back to the Future. Anyways, Warner Herzog's basis, voice is great. And no matter what the topic is, who cares? Because it wasn't that exciting, and he was all over the place. But it's Werner Herzog's voice. But back, back to the future. Um, it's it's. I dropped it a half a star. I think we gave it too many excuses for some of its cheesy qualities, um, especially the first ten minutes of the movie that I don't really think works. Interesting. Zach has takes about something being too cheesy, considering. Anyway, moving. it is interesting. It is very considering. Are you calling me cheesy? Um, I don't get it. Potentially. I'm I'll be honest, my favorite Werner Herzog is when he plays uh, a nature documentarian in Penguins of Madagascar. That's my favorite Werner Herzog. 
my favorite Warner Herzog is him talking about filming The Mandalorian and uh, <laughs> how Baby Yoda was beautiful. Uh, the child. Uh, the, yeah, the child. child the child. Yes. <laughs> and the last movie I logged on Letterboxd was the A24 documentary The Elephant Queen, which is uh, really beautiful, but also kind of sad because nature is not always the nicest place. And... Um, uh, I don't think any of us really enjoy watching nature not be the nicest place, but um, it definitely appears in every nature documentary. But um, yeah, I think if you like uh, nature documentaries and you like especially like really well photographed ones, um, definitely check it out. But does Tim Allen make funny chimp noises, elephant noises during the thing? No, don't watch it. Watch Disney Nature. It's all worth your time. <laughs> All right. Interesting uh, pro Tim Allen takes from Zach, considering. Yeah. Tim Allen. So, it's a weird year to be very pro Tim Allen. Um, <laughs> it's not 1995 anymore. I'm rebranding, guys. <laughs> All right. And with that, let's continue on to our discussion of our main feature, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, the 2019 Tom Hanks film. And Zach is terrible at plot description. So we're going to make Zach do a plot description right now. Hit it, Zach. I was getting really excited because I thought I was going to do real good. And as soon as I try to come up with any of the characters' names, I freeze. All right. So, uh, Matthew Reese. Okay. Um, some maybe Lloyd? Is his name Lloyd? <laughs> yes? Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Matthew Reese as Lloyd is a journalist for the uh, Esquire, Enquire, whatever. Oh, okay. Esquire? Okay. Esquire. Oh. Not National Enquirer. He's a journalist for the National Enquirer. Um, he's an Esquire journalist, and he is, you know, cynical and uh, wants to, like, do hardcore um, journalistic news, and he gets assigned uh, to go and miss the interview Mr. Rogers as for, like, the heroes of America and do a profile on him, and he's like, why am I even assigned a part? Because this is not what I do, but is all meaningful in his life because it teaches him how to deal with this trauma through the meeting of Mr. Rogers um, and how to you know become a better person as he's moving into fatherhood. And that's what I got. It's And Mr. Rogers helps. I barely talked about Mr. Rogers. This movie does have to do with him. Mr. Rogers, uh, you know, gets to put us all through therapy like Matthew Reese and help us discover what it means to be a good person as Tom Hanks um, talks in a calm, patient voice. There we go. That was something. I've never experienced yeah. that firsthand. Now I <laughs> wish that I hadn't, perhaps, but um, yeah, good job. I'm starting to feel like I'm more of a mom than I'm a dad based <laughs> on how I describe movies. I feel bad for anyone who's sitting here trying to decide if they want to watch A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood after hearing that because they will have no idea what the movie they're about to watch is like. Can you believe that it is my job to articulate myself on a daily basis for the youth? Of our nation, I, I mean, can't everyone, everyone, everyone is the status of the youth of our nation. Everyone is saying that the uh, uh, country is going downhill, that. and uh, it's definitely it's, Zach's fault. It's all my fault. <laughs> so let's uh, get into the film. We like to talk about you know some things that strike us as we watch this film, uh, themes, stuff that point, sticks out, and I think that you can't talk about this movie without talking about Mister Rogers as the TV personality. And I wanted to ask um, my co-host today, 
Paul, uh, what did Mr. Rogers mean to you as like a child? Uh, I have pretty much no relationship to Mr. Rogers as a child. It just wasn't a, something that I watched. I think part of that's my age. Part of that also just my parents had sort of different selections in terms of children's TV and content. Um, a lot of like Blue's Clues, Sabumafu, Sesame Street kind of stuff. Didn't really watch Mr. Rogers very much. So I think, I mean, anecdotally, I, I had sort of known about him through cultural stuff. And then when Won't You Be My Neighbor came out in 2018, that was sort of like, oh, like for me, that was way more informative than I think it was for a lot of people, just because I didn't really know much about him as a figure. And I knew like what his show was like, but I had it's weird to see it um, through the lens of that documentary. So that kind of changed the way that I look at him. And then now this obviously like, it's weird the main avenue that I've known him is through film, which obviously is not what he was mainly known for. But I guess like that's what happens when you have two movies made about you in like a two year span. Uh, Zach, yeah. same question to you. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I definitely watched it as a kid, and I was a PBS, you know, kid in general through Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, um, Reed Rainbow, that stuff. Um, please support PBS and NPR and other uh, their public broadcasting. It's very important to many people, um, whether you experience it or not. But it's very important to, I feel like, me as a learning child, um, watch a lot of those shows. Um, I do think. I might confuse how much Mr. Rogers mean, meant to me at the time with the lore of Mr. Rogers. It's like when you have, when a story is so told so much, you, your memories start to um, warp a little bit and you start to create like fake memories. So I don't know in reality how much I cared about Mr. Rogers in the moment as a little kid and really how much time I spent as definitely a Sesame Street kid, as much as just like I always was aware of who he was and how important he was to many people's lives, that it might've crept into my memory Oh, so Zach's actually never seen Mr. Rogers once. He's never actually it into his own brain through the years. I thought for 20 years Mr. Rogers was the old man down the street that would share with me some pie. He was very important. Okay. That was going. Uh, I thought that was going in a weird direction. I'm glad. No, it's I, I, I was five words in there. I realized I had no direction <laughs> on where that was going. I mean, I just, that was still creepy anyway. Um, so my connection to Mr. Rogers as a kid was my parents used to get the VHS tapes out of like the library. Of like they used to put them. Oh, they put like a, libraries. Lucas just lives at the goddamn library. It was a, it was a very big part of me. Um, libraries looking, are also very important, and please donate to your local libraries if they do, do any fundraisers. Okay, absolutely. Um, yeah, but we used to <laughs> they used to check out the tapes from the library for me, and I would watch these shows. So that's my experience is more like like the taped version of it. So it never wouldn't really watch in order the way that people on TV would. But um, yeah, it's hard to it's you can't really underplay what it's like to watch Mr. Rogers as a kid. It's just like, it's the first time I felt like as a kid, I was watching something that, like he, he has this way of connecting with you through the screen. Like he's really good at, it, it's a recording. Obviously he's not talking to you, but it really does feel like he is. And just like, he has this incredible ability to touch on what children would be feeling in a situation. I feel like a lot of shows try to tackle that, but they tackle at that from, the point of view of what adults think kids would be thinking while well, Mr. Rogers always tackled it from the perspective of this is actually what kids are thinking. You know, kids, when you're a little kid, you're just like, there's a lot of emotions. You're kind of a ball of emotions at times. And you just get, you get scared for like really random things at times. You get nervous about stuff. Um, it's not always like these really big triggers that think that, you know, initiate your emotions. Sometimes it's just really small stuff. And I felt like Mr. Rogers did like a really good job of like reaching out to kids and being like, here's interesting things you can learn about, but also like, it's really valid to have, you know, to just be afraid around a new person or something like, 
a lot of stuff tries to like push this idea that everybody needs to be really out there and talkative and friendly all the time. And Mr. Rogers was kind of like, no, it's okay to just hang back a little bit and be a little nervous, be a little scared. And I think he just does an amazing job, like connecting with children in that way. And the way that that works, I think is kind of what makes the movie work too, is that it sort of openly embraces that idea and like, doesn't make it, um, that doesn't give you like a bird's eye view. It makes you sort of feel like you're in the middle of the entire thing, which is kind of the way that, that the movie treats the viewers, like as if you're part of the broadcast, there's so much like fourth wall breaking and, um, and Mr. Rogers, like looking directly at the camera when he's talking, that it does sort of blur that line between like talking to the camera um, and sort of just talking as, as sort of like a, a figure on the TV show. It sort of, it, it, again, it crosses over almost through the television screen in a way that I think movies don't really try to do usually. No, there. The movie gives you no way out. Is what it is. It makes you uh, deal with your vulnerability. To engage with the movie, you have to be open with yourself, which is how you know Mr. Rogers tried to engage anyone he was connecting to, or at least that's what we you know are taught through media to believe that's the kind of person he was. Um, to where you know when the character um, played by Matthew Reese Lloyd is having to confront his own ability to um, be open with himself and all his internalized emotion and have to be vulnerable, us as viewers are being forced to confront that as well. Because it, like you said, we are being spoken to. Mr. Rogers has always made it feel like not just the characters on screen, but the kids watching at home are being spoken to. And that's happening at the same time as the movie. I feel like every time I watch this, the three times I watched in the past eight months, um, I, spend the whole time just digging deep within myself and exposing my vulnerability and um, becoming a better person for it. Yeah. I think part of that is the way that um, Rogers treats Lloyd, just like, a, like the same way he treats kids on his program. And he talks to them all the same. Like there's no sort of babying when he talks to children. He sort of, he talks pretty directly about like feelings of anger or sadness or guilt. And he puts that them all on the same level to where it doesn't sound condescending when he's talking to children. So I think when he talks to Lloyd, at first you have to get used to it because you're almost like, why is he talking to Lloyd the same way he talks to kids? But then that's kind of the, just how Mr. Rogers seemed to see all people is sort of on equal playing field and treating them with the same kind of respect. And that's what makes it such a weird and kind of interesting experience to watch Lloyd enter into that world because he is such an outsider where, you know, you see the people on the show, they kind of know what Mr. Rogers is like and they're kind of, you know, setting their ways like, oh, he's like taking up our time. Yeah. And being on schedule, whereas Lloyd is just kind of mystified by the whole, um, the aura of Mr. Rogers. It's when you're so, adults are so quickly to dismiss, you know, the Mr. Rogers persona, and more importantly, the lessons, you know, he teaches the social emotional skills as, you know, for kids. So once again, you don't need to watch the movie because we understand who Mr. Rogers are, or you can dismiss him as someone for kids. But, you know, this movie forces you to give it a chance and realize that you know that dismissiveness is all a um, defense mechanism to protect ourselves that we you know forget that the fears that we have as children are still real and carry into our adulthood and that we need to um, you know reconcile them to be able to move on as adults and be able to be the adults that we need to for our generations moving forward and that's uh, is just something that has been fed into by just the way that that sort of media personalities have been deconstructed. I think over time, you see so many people 
that are these big public figures who are so positive and out there, and then you you learn things about them that are so unsavory. And that's why he like Mr. Rogers is this weird pillar of sort of authenticity, which is what Lloyd sees firsthand. Is that a lot of the figures of television and these kind of you know um, pep in your step kind of happy go lucky programming are revealed to not really be like that. And when he is like that, it's almost like you can't totally buy it. You you're, you think there has to be something off here, and that's kind of yeah, the feeling. He- Lloyd comes back from his first interview, and the, one of the things he's saying is, I don't buy it because it's so sincere and so genuine. You're like, this has to be an act. No one acts the exactly the same way on their show, talking to a kid and talking to an adult, talking to a producer. It's kind of – it's astounding because no one does it. None of us even do that. We have different like ways you talk to – you know your boss or your professor or somebody versus you talk to your friend or your family member. Like no one is like Mr. Rogers and that they are just genuinely themselves 100% of the time, regardless if a camera's watching or there's, or they're sitting in their house with their, their wife. It's he's genuinely Mr. Rogers every second of every day. And that's kind of astounding to just as a way of being. It's a, on like he like you know this idea of like oh this yeah. personality is on when they're on camera and they turn it off when they go off camera he tor- totally sort of throws that to the side sorry to interrupt you no no absolutely yeah it, it but it's it, it's a curse of you know human nature that we all at some point develop a some level of cynicism some people's more extreme than others and you know lloyd is why the framing of this movie works so well of not being you know mr rogers biopic but framing it through um kind of like a case study almost of experience Mr. Rogers through his interactions with someone else of him being able to reach out to this person is because he is the perfect um, encapsulation of that average cynicism that exists in, I think, most humans and that average dismissiveness. So as we can work through this essentially therapy session with him as as his layers are you know uncovered ours can be uncovered as well and start to realize that we're all fakes and frauds for covering up our you know true selves with i said that cynicism that we developed through whatever traumas made us go, go through it yeah i mean i think it's i think this movie could be really hard to watch if you're a person who's not even willing to acknowledge like the inner thoughts or like how you feel in situation. If you're one of those people that's really, really guarded, that's really about image and what you show to the world. I think this movie would be almost unbearable to watch because it really does try to bore deep into your soul and find out what you really are. Like Mr. Rogers is not interested with like the persona you can put on. He wants to know what you really feel. Lloyd to him isn't just this cynical journalist who wants to, you know, expose all the bad people. He's a profoundly damaged person who's undergone all this pain and trauma in his life. And Mr. Rogers sees that almost like instantly, like even Lloyd tells him the lie about the softball, like, Oh, it was just a play at the plate with his nose in the first scene. Mr. Rogers is like the only character that doesn't believe that. Like he clearly sees that there's something up and that's why he keeps asking about it. Well, I think he can tell he's hurt. Believe it, but it's, he's the only person that Lloyd is willing to tell the truth to like even boss who, he like seems to have this great rapport with. He doesn't tell her what happened. Like, I think everyone's kind of like, oh, it's true. Laundry, like, huh? We, like even the yeah. producer like, oh, shouldn't have led with your head, kind of thing. You know, like it doesn't sound possible, yeah. But he's the only person he's willing to sort of open up to and be. I, I, I think because from like moment one, 
that we see the interaction between um, Lloyd and Mr. Rogers is he's just exuding empathy and patience. Like it's right on the phone when he calls him to return his call, and he's and Lloyd is like shocked that he returned the call so fast because that's not how the average interaction would be, and that already is starting to. Um, twist his perspective of how this is going to go and that maybe he's not going to discover the fraud that's this like he's already like no one's like this person i've never experienced this and that he's willing to talk to him right there so i think that quick interaction always already put this idea in lloyd's head that mr rogers is you know is this empathetic human and that made him a little more open and willing so when he does um give that his truth that he would have given to anyone else when he opens up to him about his fighting with his father you believe it it was earned through that one phone call um which is some great you know screenplay and directorial choices to develop that relationship pretty quickly but also really naturally well i think it's not just that he calls him right away it's that he is willing to have a full conversation with him sort of right away and he's like yeah, and he, he when he tells him like that the most important thing in his life is the conversation he's having with him right there. That's sort of a tip off of like maybe this guy is actually serious about this. I mean, he's kind of seems the way other people treat him. Like he is a strange figure that maybe is only strange because of the way that we've all changed ourselves into these sort of cynical beings, and he is sort of the pure ideal. Um, but then again, it, it's not like he's always like that. He is very open with the fact that he struggles with with something like anger and, and sadness and his wife talks about the fact that he's not always a perfect he's not a perfect person you shouldn't see him like that because that kind of devalues the work that he puts in because he does work really hard to maintain that like that image and the the type of person he wants to be he is that all the time because he tries it's not just because he naturally is it's not easy it's something he works at actively. Yeah, and, yep. and she also also says that it not just devalues his work, but if you call him a saint, it makes it seem unattainable. And that yeah. that's like one of the more important lessons that like he his thing is something we can all reach that level of patience and and empathy as well. The movie does a really good showing that work too. Like they show him saying all these prayers for people, doing all those laps, like doing all this. Um, this work to be this person, but also even the way he approaches Lloyd is like a lot of work. Like the first time Lloyd talks to him, I think he's really turned off by him and by how yeah. frank he is and how open he is and how the star of the show is calling him back and not some, you know, assistant or somebody to schedule. Like, I think he's really turned off by this initially. And I think that the first couple times Mr. Rogers asked him a question about his past or like, what's wrong with your nose? He... It's, it, he almost feels like it. I think Lloyd almost takes it as like a rude statement. It's like, why are you prying in my life? And I think the movie kind of does that to you as the audience too, is that it is a little jarring at the beginning, how open he is and how interested he is in like digging down into the layers that maybe you don't really want to talk about or think about. But by the end of the movie, it's a really cathartic experience. We're like, yes, you really do want to think about why you're angry or like what happened in your past or like what was that frustrating moment that you don't want to think about but yes you really do need to think about because it's holding you back or it's affecting you even though you don't want to admit it's affecting you it's like the movie works on you in the same way that mr rogers works on lloyd in terms of earning it your trust and uh, earning his trust into the point where Lloyd goes yeah i am going to tell you my story about like my mom and my sister and what happened with my dad and like um 
it feels really, Zach was right when he said it earlier, it feels really earned. Like, he didn't just walk into Mr. Rogers' studio and go, hey, you're Mr. Rogers, you're the greatest human ever. Um, here's my entire life story about how it was said. It's like, no, it takes time even for someone like Mr. Rogers to earn your trust. And I think the movie does a really good job of making that clear, that it's not just, no one can just walk in and earn your trust. Earning your trust takes time. And even Mr. Rogers is really focused on earning people's trust, that that's a really important part of the process for him. And if it was easy, it wouldn't feel real. You know, if it was something where right away Lloyd bought in, that would just feel kind of stupid and would feel counter to the type of person he is. Like it is so clearly established that he is the cynic coming into interview Mr. Rogers, kind of the great sort of dichotomy that it draws is that, you know, his boss even says no one else was willing to be interviewed by him. And Mr. Rogers is the only person who is willing to. And that, I mean, that sort of sets him up for this great arc. It's sort of the long game of, him starting at this place and having to come so far because he's just so unwilling to engage with, with those ideas of forgiveness um, and empathy. Yeah. I think it's important to, to compare that, that technique that Mr. Rogers had to earn your trust as you know, the a character in this film and, and possibly in real life is Mario Heller um, and through the direction and, and screenplay is I think really mirroring a lot of those strategies um, that she, you might have seen through her, her research because the film itself is like very patient and moves at the pace that needs to move at it is very sincere in anything that might come off silly or, or goofy um it, you're able to work with it because it is just owning it and taking it very seriously i would say like specifically the dream sequence where uh matthew reese like imagines himself as the bunny in the, the mr rogers castle like on front is just like weird and goofy and should not work but the film is taking it so emotionally seriously like mr rogers um became a note takes every emotion a kid has seriously mary heller was doing the same thing and that makes that the emotions of the film also feel earned. Um, so it's connected. It's, and I think also, you know, this, sorry, go no, go. No, just I was the, you mentioned the this, <laughs> You mentioned the screenplay, but it's so interesting that this is brought to you by like the guys who wrote the Maleficent movie, which is seems like it does not at all align with like the, you know, the two don't really movie has changed my life. <laughs> it's made me a better person, Maleficent, and now I'm not a like fairy. It is in a weird way giving more credit to someone that we might be skeptical about than than you might think. And I guess there is a bit of a through line there, but it's interesting that again, it's it's. I mean, it's a sim similar thing with Marilyn Hiller's last film too, is taking these figures who we might not trust and might not believe are, are authentic and giving them sort of a humanity that we might not have considered. And that's kind of one of the best things about this movie is. And you dig into Mr. Rogers and you you kind of expect the movie to debunk him a little bit, right? You know, like you expect it to be like, there are little chinks in the armor here, but really it he comes out pretty squeaky clean. Like, and it's also not to the point where it's hokey and unbelievable. Like you can tell that he tries. And, and I think this is a lot of this is Hanks's great performances. You can feel his struggle to always try to be empathetic. Like there's the time where Lloyd makes the comment about how hard it must've been um, having Mr. Rogers as a father, which comes off as kind of a mean comment, but Fred kind of internalizes that and, and considers it and takes it seriously and, and says like, yeah, like I can't imagine it was easy for my children being raised with me as this great, this public famous figure as their father. And he really takes that stuff seriously. He thanks him for giving him that perspective, which is something that I think almost no one else would ever do is 
is thank someone for asking a question that is that kind of uncomfortable and makes you think about your kids in an unsavory way. I think the way Hanks performs in those scenes with such patience helps it seem real because it makes it seem like a practice. Like it's a practice it takes to not react quickly because all of us just want to react fast, especially in internet culture. We just react first emotion quickly. But through the patience of Hanks' performance, he's as you said, he's internalizing that, thinking about it before he speaks and reacts. And within that, that's not, you know, someone uh, that we can't all do. That's a learned practice. That's something he has trained himself um, to be able to do. That's, um, you know, dismissing any other urges that we naturally have and remembering what it means, you know, to be his best moral self and listening self. And it, he's just such a good listener. <laughs> If it was easy, it wouldn't mean much, you know? Like if it was yeah. just, oh, from a child, he was always helping other kids out and he was doing this, that, and third. That wouldn't say anything. But I think that what it says about the human spirit, I think is the most important thing is that, again, like you mentioned earlier, it is something that is achievable and workable. And something that even if you don't get to that level, you can always inch closer and closer and closer. And I think that's what it shows Lloyd doing is, he's, by the end of the movie, he's not Mr. Rogers Jr., you know? He's just a yeah. person who is more empathetic and more able to communicate his emotions to the people around him. And that is kind of the power of Mr. Rogers. It's getting everyone a little closer to being a better person. You know, if a million, if a million people are 5% better because of it, like that is so meaningful. And like, you know, he's not going to necessarily cure people from being these terrible cynics all the time, but I think to allow them to embrace, you know, the, their potential for change as human beings is what makes Mr. Rogers as a public figure so valuable. And why I wish that like, every kid could have a figure like that to instill that sort of ideas in them, you know, aside from sort of their parents, but as this big public figure to give them the, the tools to, to execute that in their daily lives. Yeah. And I think, you know, say that we need the kids that have those tools. I think part of the point of the movie, and I, I have some background on Jim Muriel Heller's um, purpose of doing it because I was so hyped for this movie from an interview she did when doing press for Catch Me If You Can on, on why she decided to make um, Beautiful the Day in the Neighborhood when she originally was not going to make any movies about male characters. That was her original you know, game plan. Um, but having a child and let alone a male child, a boy, <laughs> some might call them, um, she wanted to make a movie about what it meant to be you know, a strong male but also a big theme of this movie is being able to reconcile with your own trauma so then you can be that kind of um role model for your, your child so you can teach them how to deal with their own pains but you cannot do that until you're willing to deal with your own you know pains and, and your own flaws and understand that everyone has these flaws and that we can work past them so it um it, it's about really about parenting in a lot of ways. Like Mr. Rogers is the parent to all of us. And as you said, we need to have future generations with those skills and we got to be the best parents we can be. And it, it was a right place, right time thing for Mario Heller too, because I think I was, I was reading that the reason she even got Tom Hanks in this is because she knows Colin Hanks personally. And it came at a time in his career where Tom Hanks had even made it sort of known within agencies in the film industry that he wanted to stop playing real life people. And he sort of wanted to to step away from because you know in the early 2010s that's kind of all he's doing is real life hero real life hero real life person and i think that that personal connection allowing her to have him in the movie is almost 
in concert with the, the film's ideas of, of sort of opening yourself up to to possibilities even if like ideally like, yeah i don't really want to be a real person right now but if something if a role like this comes around then it kind of is a perfect fit for tom hanks at this point in his life and then this point in his career and ha them having that personal connection i think is what allows the film to have this warmth to it as well i think hanks is so important to this film because not just for the acting talent but like he doesn't look exactly like mr rogers he can put on the sweater he doesn't really sound exactly like him his face is different but i think what really works is that tom hanks as a person is sort of similar in the way we view him to mr rogers and i think that comes through in this film oh, yeah. is you're like this isn't mr this isn't exactly mr rogers and i think that's actually kind of smart you just did the documentary you do not want to redo the documentary in a in you know in a live action movie that's like a terrible idea i actually was really happy when this came out and I was like, oh, they're not just doing a standard Mr. Rogers biopic, which is what the documentary was. I was like, oh, they're doing it from a different perspective. I think that's really, really important to the film. And one of the reasons why it is so powerful is you're not just watching the same thing you watched a year before. And Hanks is such a big part of that because, I mean, me and Zach have talked about this the whole time. He is kind of like America's moral center. He's always been the hero guy. He's like the, the guy who's like, no, we're gonna do the right thing. We're gonna work together. We're going to be like good people. And I think that comes through in this film is you're like, yeah, Tom Hanks kind of is this guy who we've seen for years and he is kind of like America's dad. And so it's not surprising to see a Tom Hanks person in this film playing Mr. Rogers. And I think it kind of blends really well the character, Mr. Rogers, but also the person we know to be Tom Hanks. And I think that um, like that combination really, really works in this film even though it's not a perfect impersonation or lookalike of Mr. Rogers himself. Well, it's more interesting because it's not, I think. And again, it is, it's sort of double lensing because it's using the Hank's persona, which he basically is the 20 years later version of Mr. Rogers in terms of the public consciousness and the public ideal of who he is. It's that same thing of, you know, anytime a kid sees, or so, like someone sees Tom Hanks, they're going to be excited and they feel like they're welcomed and warm. And that's what this movie sort of, that, that's kind of how this movie was made. I don't think this movie really works. Um, and I don't think people go to see it if it's somebody else besides Tom Hanks. It is sort of that thing where, you know, the casting was announced and it just seems so perfect in, in terms of the way that we see them both and the way that we appreciate them culturally. And that it kind of had to be Tom Hanks, even though, like you said, he's not really giving like an impression. And there are a lot of actors who could probably give a performance that are just about as good. But I think that it wouldn't deliver the same way for the audience because a lot of the experience is thinking about Tom Hanks through the lens of Mr. Rogers and thinking about him as this ideal figure. And he's, you know, he's so carefully crafted his career because you look at the types of characters he plays and outside of a couple exceptions in the early 2000s, he is always the morally upright, upstanding figure we believe in who is doing the right thing. That's not an accident. You know, like that is an intentional choice by him to position himself. And I think that this is almost the culmination of that. And I wonder if this is going to be an inflection point in his career from the transition to doing other things, because for, uh, you know, for the last couple of decades, he's been this person where it's like, he is very capable. He's very reliable. He's sturdy. He's a good person. And you almost wonder if this is sort of him playing that up to the highest degree. And if that will cause a shift moving forward for the next few years. I mean, I did talk about in the last episode how I think the 2000s, especially like the mid-2000s, was him trying to play against that persona. Um, usually, you know, for a failure through Lady Killers, um, through uh, 
Uh, what is the other one he plays kind of an anti-hero? I don't know. Road to Perdition. But Da, yeah. da Vinci Code is playing just like an adventure hero. Rather than, oh, Road to Perdition, thank you. Um, to where I think he decided that it, he was probably better fit telling the kind of stories that I think he wants to tell. Like, I think it's not just him wanting to place himself as a hero, but I think this is the kind of art he wants to let out into the world. I think, like, idealistically, he, he wants to be a positive influence. And I, I think that the meta text of this film, I would have to imagine maybe did, you know, speak to him a little bit as well as being able to also play on that reputation and show that just like Mr. Rogers, people want to call him a saint, but it's that, that, that Hanks probably thinks every reputation that he has is, you know, practiced and earned just like Mr. Rogers goes well. And I think that's what he wants to express. He almost got trapped in that, to be honest. I think in some ways he may have really wanted to do the stuff he did in the early 2000s and may have been really interested in that. And I think America, and I think this kind of plays in this film is America was like, no, you're the good guy who does the right thing and helps everybody and leads the team and everybody gets out and everybody does the right thing. And if something bad happens, you make the sacrifice because you're always the right person and you always make the right choices. And I think in some ways it kind of tied him to this character. And, you know, I maybe he's sad about that. I don't know. But I think he has produced such amazing work playing that character, these characters that um, I think it's worth it. And I think this is just, I think I agree with you, Paul. I think this really is the culmination of like, how can you play a more kind and empathetic and good person than Mr. Rogers. Like every character from now on, if he tried to do that, would be downhill. There's no way you play a character that is more of a good person than Mr. Rogers. Yeah, and but it's I really also somehow this, this, real. The real character is a real person. I think that's even different than some of these other yeah. heroes who are less real. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I think it's weird that he is, his image is this way in our minds now because. Well, at the beginning of his career, he's doing these irreverent comedies that are mm -hmm. weird and kind of dark and kind of like even something like The Money Pit. It's not like a very heartwarming or, or like meaningful tale. And I think this all transitions with I think the, the two movies he wins Best Actor for where he gets solidified in people's minds as being that figure of, of trust and representing sort of the American ideal man in that he's he's nice and kind, but he's also, you know, kind of he has a seriousness to him. And it's his career has gone through that that big sort of peak and valley, and I almost wonder again, like, will he try to change that again? But it's almost you know impossible because he again, like Zach was saying, we kind of rejected him when he tried to be different, when he tried to be weird. People didn't want that, and you wonder if he, he is kind of stuck in this position of, yeah, yeah, he he has kind of reached the peak of niceness. He can play on screens. And he can't really go totally sour because people don't want that either. So he's kind of in a weird zone where he's got this really small margin of error. I think he's kind of, which is weird to say for someone who's so beloved and so many people care about, but he has this image to maintain and he has to act again. It's like Mr. Rogers. He has to actively work at that. And you wonder you where that's you don't expect him to be cast in bad grandpa too, or dirty I mean, grandpa. I don't know which one's which. He's probably like grandpa. It's like some stupid reboot where they're like, oh, dirty, like dirty grandpas. It's the movie with the narrow and okay, Hank. The joke is rude. It's dirty grandpa too. Uh, Tom Hanks goes to a shop. Dirty no grandpas. One. So you have two of them. Get it? Mm, well, yeah. Is, is, is he Robert De Niro's grandpa? Grandpa of a grandpa? I think he's younger than Robert De Niro. <laughs> 
Well, okay. So one thing you guys mentioned earlier that I sort of want to circle back yeah. to, and Zach weirdly did not mention it in his plot synopsis, is there is this framing device of the movie being about Lloyd's episode on on Mr. Rogers' show. And that is one of the most interesting things is it takes a bit of a risky choice, I think, there with creating this unrealism. It changes the aspect ratio so you feel like you're watching something different and it's a clear shift. But I think it works just because it's so in concert with the, how genuine the rest of the movie is that it does. it's not like it's taking a step up to being even more sort of earnest. It's just as earnest as it's been the entire time. And because there are those interactions where they have those heartfelt moments that are not in the show, it makes the show feel like it works with the rest of the movie and doesn't feel weird. I feel like that's such a risky choice and that working is kind of one of the big things that elevates this movie beyond just being like a solid, um, like kind of heartwarming story is that that weirdness actually does kind of fit in with the rest of the movie. And I think, I think it works it puts you off balance right away, which then, yeah. you know, is forcing you to, um, you know, open up and not be in your comfort zone. I think it also puts you in a position where you understand Mr. Rogers is that, you know, him as this TV character. So when he starts as this TV character and then transitions to real life, I think it gives you this ability to ground yourself in the thing you already know, rather than just throwing you into, hey, here's Mr. Rogers making breakfast in his house, which I think would be really, really jarring if we were pushing, put in a position where everyone who knows him as this character was forced to see the, the real person. But I think it lets you get to the real person by seeing, by starting it in his show and then having Lloyd be a part of that. And you see how much he's not different than his character, which is the most important thing. Absolutely. Is, by starting, because normally you, when you first show a character, you want to establish right away who they are. And I think when you first see him through the lens of the show, you think, oh, it's going to set him up this way. And we're going to sort of dig deeper and deeper. And there's going to be something weird. It's going to be something dark from his past. But when you see it continue to be the same person, he's nice to he's nice to Lloyd. He's nice to all the people on the set. He's nice to all the kids. He takes extra time, even not when the cameras are on, to, um, to talk with those children. There's that moment with the tent where he tries to put it up and he can't do it, but he, he then pivots to, oh, this is a good lesson of you can't do everything by yourself. And even sometimes grownups have these struggles that they have to overcome. Yeah. And starting it with him being in the show and then obviously ending it with pretty much him being in the show is there's no difference there with his character. So it makes that, that warmth more believable because you're not, it's not, you don't feel like you're in a fictionalized world. You feel like the fictional world and the real world are just kind of the same thing. And he's the same person in both. And that allows you to, Zach brought this up earlier, but the fact that they do the old rabbit sequence in uh, Neighborhood of Make-Believe and the idea of the first time that Lloyd is on set, he's talking to the producer guy about Daniel Tiger. And he goes, Daniel is Fred. And that's what allows him to use that as another area to talk about feelings. Like Daniel is almost the most pure part of Fred Rogers. Is that is the is that is Fred when he is truly doesn't have to be even a person. He's allowed to express literally anything through this puppet. And that's almost the most pure representation of Fred is that nervousness at times and that like scared feeling. And just like the world can be a lot. And sometimes even when you're trying to be Mr. Rogers and you're trying to be loving and helpful and amazing all the time, the world has got to weigh on you at some point. Because, you know, he lived through a lot of rough times. He was doing the show in, like, pretty bad times for America. That Some of that stuff must have weighed on him, even as he was sitting there trying to do all his prayers and swim on his laps and talk to all the kids. You know, and I think 
Daniel allows to let him out. And then because Daniel is Fred, you can do the old rabbit sequence and you can allow Lloyd to kind of let the same stuff out using this um, framing of the show that we already know and we're familiar with so that when you go there, we all get what they're doing. We all get that it is a like a like a it's a fantasy version of themselves, but it's also true to who they are as people. Yeah, and that um, specific scene where he is using Daniel to talk to Lloyd, um, and, and we were already told that you know he is a representation of himself. That's another moment that you know under lesser direction or lesser lesser acting throughout the film that would just come off real weird and real creepy. And and I think that is our natural reaction to moments like that is to push that off and be like, what is happening here? Um, but once again, they push it like to the right level and, you know, have the right sincerity to go with it. That, like we're not going to let off of this or we're not, not going to have the easy, you know, way out to make this feel weird. We're going to force you to change rather than you try to bully me into not being the true to bully Mr. Rogers and not being his true self through the tiger. Instead, you have to reconcile yourself in your reaction to this, um, it, which, it, you know, forces that whole, encourages the whole theme of the movie of, you know, accepting, you know, a, a you know, deeper childlike truth that we want to reject. And that scene works really well because right before he talks to them as Daniel, there's the scene where Lloyd asks him, but like, why don't you get new puppets? These ones are getting old. And Mr. Rogers is like, these are parts of the show. Like, they're not a prop. Daniel, that specific Daniel is Daniel. And he has to be there for the show to be what it is. And it's just, it's an earnest, it's such an earnest moment. Well, of he just played it off as being offended. I think that you can tell he is a little bit hurt by what he's, by yes. that suggestion. But I, he, the way he, he turns around is he asks Lloyd if Lloyd had a toy as a child that was important to him, that he kept, and that he, that meant something to him. And, but changing it and switching it around that yeah. way, it doesn't come off as him being defensive, which I think it partially is him him being defensive yeah. a little bit. He orients the conversation, but the way it feels is that he, again, he, he, this is why he was such a difficult interview. This is like a very famous thing with Mr. Rogers. Journalists kind of hated him because he never wanted to talk about himself, which is obviously that's what people want to read about. They, want, they don't want to read about some random journalist from you know Empire Weekly or, or Esquire for the matter. For the, like people want to learn about Mr. Rogers and his empathy is almost like it. It's funny. It doesn't fit in with the way the world is in a lot of ways. It is that square peg in, in a world of round holes because people don't want that. They don't want that sort of genuine earnestness. They want, you know, people deep down, I think a lot of people want to know, yeah. Oh, I want to know what's that messed up thing about Mr. Rogers. I'd love to find out like this dirty thing mm -hmm. of his past. There's a sort of this desperation for uncovering the truth. And with Mr. Rogers, because it is the truth, and he is like this figure that is straight up, he is as he looks. Yeah, in, in saying that he may be um, not answering the question to make the interviews about himself may seem like he's like avoiding. I feel like people take that um, as avoiding talking about themselves and uncovering themselves, but I don't think that's true. I think, you know, Mr. Rogers, as the character in the person, is just someone who walks the walk and doesn't talk the talk that he thinks discussing who he is is through his actions and through his interactions with people rather than a factual account of his life. If you want to know who he is, it's having these richer conversations is really, you know, that's who he is. 
and you can tell he can't he couldn't really imagine doing it another way like he almost doesn't understand why someone wouldn't want to talk yeah. about themselves why someone wouldn't want to poke and he does kind of go too far for sometimes for some people and that's even a learning experience for him he pushes lloyd too far when they're when he is having that experience yeah. he turns it back around and asks about his father again and you know as good of a person as mr rogers is sometimes people don't want to confront that stuff and it becomes difficult and um, if Lloyd were a different person, if maybe he were, uh, you know, had, had not had his uh, his wife be the kind of person she is, or been like slightly open to the situation, like Mr. Rogers could have totally burned that bridge and could have totally spurned him, and that could have turned out for the worse. It's a risky yeah, his, play by being so earnest yeah. and honest. Yeah, and his breaking point, Lloyd's breaking point, actually isn't even in a moment with Mr. Rogers. Is I even through that? It was when his dad goes to the hospital and he's like, I just need to leave. And then he, you know, kind of blacks out. And that was his lowest low. And I think, you know, Mr. Rogers, maybe through those interactions, gave him like the tools to be able to, um, you know, deal with his issues. But it comes down to the character had to deal with it himself. That Mr. Rogers is not always there. He has to confront it himself. He has the conversation with his wife. Um, finally sitting down and saying, you know, this is why I had to leave. It was at the hospital. And I understand that I am wrong and I want to be better. That Mr. Rogers is not there for every moment to have these conversations. But it's just kind of that memory and that idea. It's really that symbol of who he is that, you know, can exist in all of us to remind us, you know, how we can take a second to reflect and, you know, be the person that we want to be. And of course, the movie is about Mr. Rogers. So most of our conversation has been about Mr. Rogers. But I yeah. think the Lloyd character is what I think takes this movie again, like a little step above what it could have been otherwise, I think that. So, you know, it's it's based on Tom Janot, who's a, a, a writer for Esquire in the late 90s. And I think Matthew Reese is really good in this movie. Like, I think he's yeah. a lot of people sort of dismiss it as being him not being good. I honestly think that I like the Hanks performance and I think it, the movie makes it really work. I don't know that Hanks is blowing other people off the screen for me necessarily in the same way that a lot of people seem to think. Like I, my, my favorite performance in this movie is actually Chris Cooper. I think he's so warm um, while being a little cynical, being a little snively, like he brings so much emotion out of Lloyd. And I think their arc of their relationship is so meaningful and so powerful. And that's what, that is the heart of the movie really is. It's, it's the Lloyd stuff with his father, as much as, it's tangentially about Mr. Rogers. And I think this is why a lot of people kind of knocked it is because they went in expecting a movie about Mr. Rogers, but the movie is not necessarily interested in interrogating Mr. Rogers like on its own. You know, it wants to also be about this man, about how he can be affected by Mr. Rogers, but also how he is as a person, how his family sort of trauma um, is manifested through his work. And, you know, a lot of his life issues probably come from that relationship with his dad and, the sadness of his, his mom and the way that that situation ended. But the way that that's resolved, I think, is what makes the movie pack that punch. Um, there's that that moment where he finally tells his father that he loves him. And you hear Chris Cooper let out this long sigh as if he's been waiting the entire movie the last few years for him to finally say it. And that movie, that moment always really hits for me. That's like the most emotional part. Like Chris Cooper made me cry in multiple movies in 2019 um, between this and Little Women. And I think that the stuff with Lloyd is, is so, so good. I think, I actually, I think the last time I was watching this, I I think I've come around to the idea that I think Matthew Reese is the one that impresses me the most in this film. Like, he just, the emotions he is able to express, and I think it's 
partially the film is really empathetic and allows you to feel like his pain and his frustration. But like a couple of those scenes, you really get inside how uncomfortable he is being at the wedding, seeing his dad. Like you can feel the trauma he feels, not even talking to him, just being within like 10 feet of this guy. And you just feel how much he hates it. Like he wants out. And if he could sprint out of there, if there was a way to do that, he would do it. And then the fight at the wedding. And I actually, I'm going to disagree. I love the Paul Chris Cooper moment where he says, I love you. The most emotional moment for me is when he comes back to his apartment, he gets kind of um, ambushed by his dad and his dad's new girlfriend. And he starts yelling at him about, do you know what it's like to watch somebody die? Do you know what it's like to watch my mom scream and scream and scream and then pass out and get revived and scream and scream and scream? And then it's, and then this of course goes into his dad having the heart attack, which really kind of, um, is kind of the beginning of them reconnecting when he sees um, the frailty of his father. Like he has such hatred, but in that moment when he sees the frailty of like human beings and like watching his father fall into the floor, it's the moment where he has all the hatred, but also realizes that he doesn't know how much longer he's going to have. And even if he really hates this person and hates what he's done to him and has all this trauma, this is still his dad and still means something. And in some ways, the hatred is only so strong because he really did like his dad and wanted him to be there. And that's why he has such an extreme aversion to him at the start of the film. And that's why he gets so angry at this guy who keeps trying to talk to him after he's told him no over and over and over again. I think there's the importance of, you know, thematically that the he the reason he has to deal with his relationship with his father is that ho ho withholding that hate, you know, past his death, then can cause you to repeat the cycle. If you're, you know, withholding the same hate that maybe his dad had had, and then has the same, you know, sense that his dad has, and he can't be the father he wants to be for his child, so he has to be able to forgive his own father to, you know, then become a better person and, and be a better example rather than repeating the same thing. It's just such a sad um, family story, you know, when, when it's revealed what happened with their family, it's, you understand why he's so angry. And in that moment, I think he's almost more angry at his dad because he's not allowed to be angry at him. You know, like when his dad gets sick, it's like he's doubly upset because he's still mad at him for what happened with his mom and also he feels, you know, he feels that kind of inner guilt of, I can't really be mad at him when he had a heart attack and that's just making things worse. But, but why can't I let that out? You know, it's this frustration of, um, again, it's, his emotions have been kept inside for so long. He has no idea what to do. He lets them loose and they, it's like Pandora's box. He can't get them back inside and he doesn't know what to do with them, which is why, again, why the Mr. Rogers relationship is so important because he has no way of dealing with these. Clearly like his father didn't prepare him for dealing with his own emotions. And I think that's, why he's such like a, a, a hard to deal with individual. It's why he's such a cynical journalist. It's why he's difficult to a lot of people is that he doesn't know how to talk about his feelings and he has to learn how to through Mr. Rogers. Well, his I think dad clearly doesn't know how to talk about his emotions either. And I think there's, I think one thing you don't, I think they don't touch in it, but clearly his dad has some trauma in his past. That This was not his dad just walking out of the family. Like he clearly has past trauma as well. And you see this in, that he comes to the wedding and he just thinks that he's going to be able to make this connection. Like he's clearly someone who never learned how to, you know, connect with people and apologize and like rebuild the bridges that you may have broken because he comes to that wedding with the idea that he's going to be able to walk over to this guy and have a drink with him. And then suddenly things are going to be better and they're going to be able to talk. Like he doesn't 
get it initially. And it takes, I think, a lot of time around Lloyd to understand how angry Lloyd is, how little Lloyd wants to do with him. Like, he has to figure that out, and he keeps trying over and over. But he's also, like, really bad at it. Even, like, every time he does it, he's kind of fumbling over his words. Every time he does it, he says something slightly offensive. Like, he's not trying to be offensive, he's like but he's... wife, when they first talk, he's like, oh, like, I, she could have done better. Like, you know, she could have a better job, or you could do a little better, isn't it? Aren't you old to be having children? Like, it's yeah. just weird. He, he yeah. thinks that old friends, like, you know, kind of joshing each other at a, like, at a, a pub. But it's like you're his father, and you haven't talked to him in years. It's a, it's a very strange um, relationship, especially when they first reconnect. It's really. I don't weird. think I don't think he understands father and son relationships. I don't under, think he understood his son, relationship with his son before he left. I don't think he really understands it now. I think it really takes him to like the end of the movie when he's sitting next. He's in the bed, and his son is sitting next to him, holding his son to kind of start getting that. And I think he spends so much of the movie like. He's so awkward at it. He's always fumbling over his words, and he's always like, "Oh, why don't you just sit down and have pizza?" Like, is it so rude? Like, he always he's always like correcting his his, his his like politeness. Like, why aren't you polite enough? Like, why aren't isn't it like his politeness so bad? But it's like, like you don't get like what you've done to your son. But like, it's why the performance is so good because it's so genuine. Like, there are people like a lot of like he would be like that. He would just be perfect at learning how to reconnect. Like, he would be really awkward at it. But he'd be like, you can clearly see he's trying. But he doesn't know how to try, which is kind of like what Cooper is really good at playing. Yeah, and I think one of the most important lines that Cooper delivers near the end of the film, it delivers so beautifully, is that why is it that I just discovered how to live my life at just while it's about to end? Um, why that line I think is so important also is then that connects to the idea of you know math, the importance of Matthew Reese and really all of us dealing with that earlier rather than taking it until it's too late. To Mr. Rogers, Rogers is so important that people deal yeah. with those emotions <laughs> early on. And um, there was one interesting thing that I found because I actually reread the story by Tom Genode, um not too long ago. And the story includes that moment on the Metro. Like that really happened. That seems yeah. like such a hokey thing that they added into the movie where you're like, oh, they wanted to make it a little more sentimental. They wanted to get across the universality. But in the story, Tom Genode talks about that literally happens. They're taking the subway in New York together and a bunch of teens start singing the song on the subway. And it's like this really, you know, it's a really cool visceral scene that it's, it, you know, it, it kind of gets you in the moment. It feels cheap, but the fact that it's real yeah. is like one of those other things where it's like, of course, like Mr. Rogers is just, it's so hard to believe any of this stuff is legit. It's just crazy. It's that idealistic, you know, pleasant and sincere existence. Those kind of scenes really don't have to be idealistic. That can, that can be the truth. That can be real. And it's also but, just like, that was from an era where everybody did watch the same programs. So every kid would have watched Mr. Rogers. So there is the idea, like that would never happen today with any show. But that could have happened then because all those families probably turned on PBS at the same time and all those kids watched the same show. And it was this like, connectivity in everyone's lives that doesn't exist anymore because we have, you know, 900 channels and 17 streaming services and you can watch any different thing at any different time. But like at that point in time, everybody would have watched Mr. Rogers. So there's that. It yeah, makes even the sense. On the train, like the dudes in like their mid 30s. Because they had kids like watching it or something. Yeah. So like they all get it. Or maybe they're like Zach and they're like low key like watching children's programs and they're like, you know, 
grown adults, but that's not, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Absolutely. And I think the diversity of that train scene is also important that his, you know, words can, you know, exist beyond cultures and beyond um, economic levels, um, how important his message is really for everybody of all worlds. Well, he remember he had the member from the documentary. I think one of the most important sequences from the Morgan Neville doc, which I won't talk about much here, but there is a scene in it where he specifically makes sure that him and a character of a different race, an African American gentleman, wash their feet in the same bucket. This idea of just being like, "Hey, look, this is completely normal. People with different races, we all live together, and you know, there's nothing wrong with this." And it's just like, just like this, it's the simple normalness of Mister Rogers, where like he doesn't play it up, he doesn't talk about like how important this moment is, but it's just like. This, he's a person and I'm a person and we're washing our feet. And it's just like that really simple connection that kids would get and they go, oh, oh, it makes sense. Yeah, of course. Everyone's, you know, we're just all just people. It's the same thing with having those emotional discussions. It's like, of course we have, like, why wouldn't you talk about your, your anger and your mistrust and your sadness? And why wouldn't we treat all people like they're the same? I think that assumptive behavior is kind of what is effective in kids. You know, kids are like, yeah, like, why would I ever... Like, of, like when kids think something is normal, that's how they behave, you know, and they want to kind of fill that adult status quo. And that's why Mr. Rogers treating things that, you know, are, are somehow somewhat controversial to some people as being normality sets a standard for the kids. And that's what the kids follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, like, so I used to coach youth sports and I would try to talk to my kids the way Mr. Rogers is just like talk to them as people being like, just interacting with them. And like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, I've noticed other people my age would try to interact with kids like, like baby talk almost. And I'm like, and I, kids really don't like that. They don't like being treated like children. They find it, I think, very turn off. And they like when people are just like, hey, how are you doing? Like, like we're just all people. Like, I'm 10 years older than you, but like, you know, you had something for lunch and you came here and you were, you know, listening to music early. Like, just like that, the basic simple connections, kids really like when you treat them like people and you're just like, how are you? Just like asking simple questions and not attempting to put them on a different level from the adults around that they really connect with that behavior. And I just, from personal experience, I've realized that. I have no personal experience that can relate to that moment at all. <laughs> just but, but really it is, a, you know, Mr. Rogers exemplifies this, that it's important not to put on the front with kids, not to put on the cover, to, you know, to be your true self makes the kids feel comfortable being the damn true self and also understanding the universality of what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Okay. That everyone has flaws. Everyone has bad days. Everyone makes mistakes like the tent. Everyone has struggles and frustrations putting something up. And, you know, as a teacher like I am or as, you know, parents that we may become, we should not hide those struggles, but openly um, confront them with the kids to, so they can learn the process of being able to go through these you know, like Stuff when, they, when they're having a hard time, when they're upset, when they're sad. If you are willing to be open about that stuff around them, then it makes more likely that they'll be the same way with you. It's the same thing with, you know, parents talking about things. Like if you don't want your kids to, to keep things from you, you have to keep, share that, that same sort of information with them. And it's that, um, again, it's that open embrace of people on the same playing field and not putting yourself or, or adults on some sort of pedestal that kids feel like they can't obtain. Um, I do want to cycle back a little bit because I, I missed out on my opportunity to talk about Matthew Reese and talk about his performance. Um, okay. But but what I, but what I think 
is really key to the movie is that he's like just the right amount of a dick and like just the right amount of anger that he has. It, they don't exaggerate to any level to where, you know, it's really the amount of dick we all are and the amount of anger, you know, many of us, you know, hold in to make that, you know, that journey feel real to us and so really to have a function as our avatar. If he's too angry, we're able to dismiss this as a character, someone who's not us. But it, I think it's very relatable. Like this is one of the characters I relate to the most and I don't think that's unique to me. I think that the purpose is that that's so universal what he's going through. Um, and it's just taking this universal experience through this very specific philosophy um, that Mr. Rogers brings to it. Um, but I think that's why every time I watch this movie, depending on what I'm going through in my life, I can see my experiences in a different way of what Matthew Reese and, and the Lloyd character is going through. Um, I've seen it three times. There's one, the like first time I saw it, when I was already really reflecting and thinking about my relationships with people. And sometimes I, I do have an anger that can come out very unfairly and a quickness to react. And that happens throughout the movie. And, and that line of, that Mr. Rogers says very early of that, like, there's no one I'd rather be talking to, um, but you at this moment, this is the most important thing right now. That line really helps me then remember that I should treat every interaction, every moment as the important thing. And that's the lesson I could take away. Watch it the last time now, you know, being a year into fatherhood, that fatherhood theme of Lloyd worried that he can't be, that he's going to, you know, repeat the cycle of his father and that he can't be this, you know, comforting fathers for a son is the same thing I'm going through as, I, as there's days where I feel you know the a guilt of whether the attention or the kind of selfishness I feel to where I wish I would have more time to myself rather than you know being open with my responsibility as a father and that movie can remind me to keep that you know on my forefront as well so I, I it just this movie is therapy and I think that character is so important to making that therapy um you know come to us and come into us so and mr rogers struggles with that too you know like when when lloyd asks about his kids you get the feeling that he puts a lot of energy into the show he probably isn't able to be totally there for his kid in the way that he maybe he would like to be or maybe that he should be he's making a choice to try and impact all these other people and you almost wonder what his home life is like and that's not really interrogated but you have to think that there's a little bit of a disconnect with your father being this big figure for kids and you wonder what he's like at his own home and I took this from the commentary that I've listened to half of, but something that I didn't pick up on during the movie um, is that he doesn't even look eye to eye at his child until like 45 minutes in the movie when he's watching the, you know, tape the footage of Mr. Rogers and Mr. Rogers is talking about the importance of being there for children and has that conversation with, um, I think, Oprah about his own parenting. And that's the first time where he's even you know, taking in his responsibility as a father and actually looks at his kid and has that bond with him. Yeah, it's a good observation. One random thing that I, I thought about is, so you guys are talking about Hanks, obviously. I've noticed that Hanks, especially in recent movies, the movies with him, aside from a couple exceptions, tend to have a lot of non-famous actors in them, especially like the women who play his wife or girlfriend or romantic interest tend to be... Like Mar Marianne Plunkett in this movie is very much like a, like a not a very famous actor. You know the same thing with Bridge of Spies. Um, mm -hmm. it just it's a weird how he's sort of been positioned as like he is almost too famous to try to put someone up against him. You know it's hard to there's not a lot, he's not in a lot of a lot of like two hander type movies like in Captain Phillips yeah. like Bar Obviously that's kind of the point conceit of the movie. Um, but 
what do you guys think of the fact that Tom Hanks is like, I mean, he's really the only famous person in this movie. I guess Chris Cooper sort of, but like Matthew Reese is not really famous. A lot of his other movies, like Mark Rylance wasn't really famous to the spies. It's positioned him as like such a central figure. And he is like the main thing to talk about in the movie. Do you think that's like a choice by him or studios or what do you think that's kind of about? I think it's probably a studio choice because he's making movies that might not necessarily um, recoup at the box office as much. And they are sometimes relatively expensive. So I think a lot of it is um, we're paying Hanks a lot. And, um, you know, this is a, a very a more adult movie that may not, you know, sell as much as a blockbuster. So I think they sometimes recoup on the back end by getting some very talented but lesser. They'd have to pay them less to get them into the film. I think that's I think that's a lot of it. I, I think there is a lot of focus on the meta text that Tom Hanks brings to that role that if you hired any other famous celebrity in there, if you had like Brad Pitt in the lead, he's bringing his own baggage and his own meta text to that role that might distract from the, you know, perspective the movie wants to focus on. Um, but I, I do want something you mentioned earlier that people often think that Tom Hanks blows people off the screen which is remarkable, I think, that he rarely ever does. The magic of Tom Hanks is he's, he's so um, sharing on the screen. That's why Matthew Reese really, I think, does get the shine. He lets the moments be about him. He, he's just such a great listener. Um, I think even in the moments talking to um, Lloyd's wife played, I'm like, I'm Susan um, Kelechi Watson, you know, famous for This Is Us. Um, even like they have bare moments on the screen and just a couple of lines, but still in those moments, I feel like there's he still feels like he's listening so much. That gives a moment for her to shine, I feel like, as well, whether in one or two lines. Yeah, he's an actor that I, I mean, I don't really love Tom Hanks, I think the same way a lot of people do. And I almost wonder if it is that understatedness or the way, you know, if he does play a lot of similar types of figures. Yeah. But I think the way this movie positions him is a lot, is a lot smarter than I think generally he gets put in, in positions is that it has him as this almost as an agent of chaos type even though he is the famous person that the movie is centered on it's not about his arc because i think it's, he struggles with having an arc because it feels like tom hanks is just so fully formed that it's hard to believe that he starts at a place where he has a lot of growth to do so that's why i think some movies that struggle to make his character feel like it has a meaningful change whereas this it's him enacting that change on somebody else which is what he's makes the antagonist movie. he's the antagonist of the movie because there really, is a yeah. He's the one that's making people. He is opposing up. Lloyd's goals and ideas for sure. Absolutely. So this was um, a pretty amazing discussion. Uh, does anyone have any final thoughts on this film before we move on to a discussion of uh, Hank's wider decade? I, I just think it's it's really underappreciated, and I think again part of that is sort of the inherent cynicism that people have is the unwillingness to engage with the film on its own level, on its own merits, to think about the movie in the terms that it presents to you. And I, I, it's just yeah. strange to me, I think, in a time where I think people are desperate for movies like this. Like, people really want something pleasant and nice and warm and, and life-affirming. Um, you know, you see this success with something like Paddington or Paddington 2. It's weird that a movie like this does not become successful in that way. And it's got mm -hmm. Tom Hanks. It's got, it seems like it's got the recipe. But for whatever reason, maybe just because it's, it's trying to be a little more interesting than people think, but... It is it is weird to me that this movie was not a, a bigger hit and a, a you know a, a more of an awards player and just more culturally impactful. I kind of maybe it will be over time. I hope it I hope it gains some sort of second life. Mm. 
Yeah, I think it's just really important to engage with the movie in the most thorough way possible. I think, you know, a lot of the more passive reactions to this was a combination of, you know, having different expectations for the film of it being more of a biopic and people going, this is not what I want, rather than accepting what is given to them. But also, you know, being able to also dismiss that something that's just kind of slight, like it's a, it's a father-son drama. We've seen it before, rather than really putting themselves in it and being open. You just gotta go into it with a real openness, not just open mind, but like an openness of yourself, an open heart, open soul. Yeah. I think that's I think that's in some ways one of the reasons that it hasn't become as popular as something like Paddington 2, which is a wonderful movie, but I think Paddington 2 lets you just get washed over with kind of the joy and wonder of that film. And it doesn't really ask you to do much yourself. This film yeah. is one it's of counting. the few that says, no, this is like therapy. You're going to talk too. Like you're going to think about your trauma or the reason you do something or your anger or why your personal interactions aren't working out or why you're working. Like it, it wants you to reckon yeah. with your life, the way that the film makes Lloyd reckon with this. Um, thank you for saying the word reckon because that is the word I've been blanking on for the past hour. <laughs> I, once again, very concerned about my memory. Um, I may need to go see a doctor. Um, but yeah, it is a, it's a challenging, it's a challenging film. Challenging in a different way than we would often use that word, but it is you know emotionally a challenging film, and that is hard for people. Absolutely. Um, so let's move on to our discussion of 2010's Hanks. I'm going to do a quick rundown of the films that this encapsulates, and then we can talk about some major themes, like what we think of the decade. So of course, we start in 2010 with Toy Story 3. Uh, this is the third installment in his really large franchise. There's not much to say about Toy Story 3. We kind of already know what it is. 2011, he goes on to do Larry Crown, a rom-com with Julia Roberts, where he directs, co-writes, and co-stars. So that's like um, one of the few times in in life where Hanks has kind of done more than just uh, act in a movie. Same year, he does Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which is, I think, one of the worst movies in recently to get nominated for Best Picture. Um, probably means a lot less now. We have like two really bad movies Both getting nominated every year. Disappeared. Like, don't. People that have no memory, like the public consciousness is just a zero of both of those movies. Oh, absolutely. And then 2012, he does Cloud Atlas, which is plays like 10 characters. There's several different races. And I actually think this movie is Hanks yeah. not doing Hanks, but is also really interesting and kind of cool. And I would encourage more people to kind of just go in um, blind and kind of just enjoy what's going on. It's like uh, the last true experiment of his career. Yeah. yeah, it is a really kind of crazy movie. Like it's it really is, out. It's really weird. 2013, he kind of goes back to normal fairy. Does Captain Phillips and Saving Mr. Banks? So he plays, you know, the hero captain of a shipping vessel attacked by pirates. He plays Walt Disney in 2015. He plays an evil corporate magnet who ruins a woman's life and is celebrated for it. Love that. But the uh, movie plays him very much as the hero of that story. Masterpiece from our He's bringing record. the dreams of his daughters to the big screen, the story that's spoken <laughs> their hearts. He's just being a good father. 2015, yeah. he does Bridge of Spies, who so plays a lawyer who's like yeah. the hero in a witness exchange. And then he does this film called Ithaca, which is Meg Ryan's directorial debut. He basically sort of like almost cameos in it. He's not a very large part. Goes to 2016, that's starts off with a hologram hologram for the king, which is Kind of a weird movie that I've actually seen. I, it's um, right. Tom Tyler. Yeah, it's Tom Tyler. Watch like, he does everything for that movie. And then he does Sully, which is kind of another one of these hero movies. Captain Sully Sunberg. <laughs> and then he does Inferno, which is kind of... So this is a decade that has him do installments in Toy Story, his really popular franchise. And then 
the final movie in Robert Langdon, which is like his really unsuccessful franchise. I, I you said this in the last episode. This these movies are huge. The first two movies yeah. are like math, math, like some of the biggest international hits. Yeah. The first one, the, the first one, the first one is. The I was actually surprised two. how much it made. But they're like in they're, they're, like, they're yeah. critically like reviled. They're but I'm, not. But, the thing is, but they're still they're still big hits. Big no, that's fair. But I think for Tom Hanks, a guy who is almost universal critical acclaim, it is weird for him to do a trilogy that is so disliked by critics. Yeah, I mean, this he he's not really starring in a lot of movies that make a lot of money, and that's this yeah. is his one cash cow from the 2010s, aside from Toy Story, is, is these yeah, movies, exactly. which is the weirdest the weirdest kind of thing about it. It's funny though, Inferno to me, that is a totally nothing terrible movie. It forever will live in my in my memory um, because of the film Blockers, because Ike Barinholtz's character is obsessed with the film Inferno. And he always assesses things by what Tom Hanks's character in Inferno would do. And that's like one of my favorite jokes in it's comedy great, in the last 10 years. It's a great joke. So 2017, he does The Circle, Oof. which is this like- The worst really, movie he's ever been. The worst really, movie he's really, ever been. I think probably in, in contention, it's awful. And by the day that the same year, he does kind of the standard Hanks movie where he does The Post, reteams with Spielberg, plays the editor of, you know, the Washington Post during, you know, a time in America. Even though that movie, I think, is actually pretty damn good, I don't think he's very good in it. He's shockingly forgettable in that film. I think it, he hurts by comparison because it's the a Robards. role that can play the Robards comparison. And I think yeah. Streep kind of blows him off the screen in a lot of those things. Um, and then 2019, of course, he does Toy Story 4, which is kind of amazing how well it works, considering you shouldn't be able to you should have you shouldn't be able to make another movie nine years after the last one, which was supposedly the end, and have it work as effectively as it does. I was terrified when they made this movie. I was like, please don't make a bad Toy Story. I really don't want you to do the Indiana Jones where you have like the really bad one at the end that I don't want to watch. We well, really like, wrote it like nine months before it came out, too. Like it's a crazy thing where the oh movie yeah. Really scrapped like there's the Rashida, oh, kind of bad Rashida Jones experience where they mm-hmm. wrested control from her. There's obviously the complicated stuff with John Lasseter and the mm-hmm. horrible things that he did at the, at the company and in life and how they had to reposition the movie. And yeah, it is a minor miracle. Like that movie is kind of great and it, it has almost no right to be. And it's got, think it, and it's got Josh Cooley, who's not one of the typical Pixar people. So they not only redid it and did all these changes well, you know, last minute. He's kind of like in the brain trust though. He's like kind of long been t- like the next director for it. But you would have thought if they're going to rip this up and throw it back together last minute, you probably would have gone to Lee Unkrich or like somebody who's been like long-term inside Pixar. Yeah, It's low-key, I think, the most complex thematically Toy Story movie. One day we'll talk about Toy Stories and I can give you my whole Toy Story as a cycle of life um, theory that I can talk an hour about. And then, of course, the last film in the 2010s for him is the movie we just talked about. And then, you know, that was the last movie he went. Uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Zach. (laughs) Movie we just talked about for an hour plus. So let's talk about what is the major theme in your mind of Hanks in the 2010s? Uh, Capability, I think, is the main thing. Is Mm -hmm. whatever he's doing in a movie, he is very good at it. There's no Mm -hmm. movie where it's like he's in over his head and he doesn't know what's exactly happening. He is always so capable and even reliable. And I think that is what the 2010s are about for him. You know, especially something like Sully, like that is what that movie is. He's really good at his job. Captain Phillips. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it's really 
cementing his legacy and his like mythology, the Tom Hanks, you know, lore. Of, Although you know, what, that, Woody's kind of bad at his terrible. Woody's kind of terrible at being a toy. At being a toy. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, that that persona I said in the '90s, we really got to know him as, and this was him just cementing this in our heads and cementing that he can forever be remembered this way. And I also want to say, I think like this has to be like such a set of movies for Lucas. But like, these are like Lucas great <laughs> movies. Captain Phillips, like I do really like like, Cap- Larry Crown, Larry Crown, which is low key underrated. No You're not a huge Bridge of Spies fan. I'm, okay, here's the funny thing. I'm shockingly not a biggest Bridge of Spies or Sully fan. I'm actually kind of okay with those movies. I do really like Captain Phillips, though. I like Sully better when it was called Flight, but that's a thing for another. Flight is better than Sully. Yes, I agree. I actually think this, I... in some ways, mirrors his 2000s in that he's doing a lot of the. It's kind of a mix of 2000s and his 90s, and then he's doing a lot of the hero performances. But there is some weirdness thrown in. And a lot of times it's just really small movies that almost no one watches, something like The Circle or, you know, um, Hologram for King. He does some kind of weird stuff in between. Kind of but a he, one for you, one for me. Like, I'm going to give, you know, everybody... It's different because he's not doing it. Like, he's not doing... He's doing... Not doing it with the Coens. He's not doing it with these big directors yeah. or big projects. It's... It, it already it feel I guess James Ponsolt did the circle that is a, just a weird thing that happened but for the most part yeah. it's interesting choices now are sort of uplifting these these under the radar directors and they generally don't really work like not a lot of the smaller it, movies are just not the well, a lot of it's like so the Cloud Atlas with the Urakowskis is is a real director's yeah. choice that they work with yeah that's true but he also he also seems to be um, a lot of it seems to be helping out like like friends of it or people he's worked with like you know. He doesn't do Ithaca if that's not a Meg Ryan movie. Yeah. Um, he doesn't do Hologram for Kim King if it's the, not the guy he had worked on the Cloud Atlas. Yeah, that's an issue in Hollywood is people just doing stuff for their friends and it's not sometimes it's not very good. Like yeah. most of the time, like, it does really feel like a lot of this where he's like he's just signing because like, it's his friend and he's not really thinking about is this movie worth it? Because like Hologram for King is not worth a Tom Hanks in that movie like there's not enough there for him do you think celebrities doing stuff for their friends in hollywood ruining hollywood is similar to people doing stuff with their friends on podcasts ruining podcasts like that's uh, it's kind of hard to ruin a podcast so do all the work hey <laughs> <laughs> i, I bring the charm you do bring I all the stuff off merch i've donated to our cause I have gotten zero dollars off that merch you bought, so thank you. I have also pretended to drink out of this mug 20 times. There's been nothing in it for the past 40 minutes. Nice job. So what do you guys think that this decade – I don't think it says a lot about Hanks now. It's kind of a continuation of stuff he's done in the past. Do you think he keeps doing this, doing the mostly uh, real-life persona, like hero characters with an occasional kind of weird thing thrown in? I think it says more about the industry than it says about Hanks because the only movies that works are the obvious ones. Like, of course, this is the movie that hits. Um, I don't know what Hanks is. I mean, like I said, he apparently has made it known he doesn't want to play real people for a while. And I almost wonder, what does that look like? You know, Tom Hanks hasn't played a lot of original characters in a long time. And even the, the people that he plays that are not real people are, you know, basically real people. They're not really interesting character creations. I wonder what it'll look like, you know, maybe moving forward, he makes some more interesting choices and, and changes the tenor of his career a little bit. You yeah, would think I that... Think, it, oh, go ahead, Zach. 
I think this conversation is going to be very interesting to have after our next episode when we talk about Greyhound. I think Greyhound can be a little bit of a compass on maybe where his interest lies. I think it's a real passion project, and I'm interested to see if really his you know latter career is really speaking his own passion. Mm -hmm. You would think if any any actor can kind of get basically whatever they want made, Tom Hanks would be up there in terms of if he wants to do some weird stuff or. Hey. Pick a role that he wants. Like you think that Tom Hanks would be one of those people who could get stuff done. It is. That's Greyhound. He wrote the movie. He did. Yeah, it's true. Uh, any other final thoughts on 2010's Hanks? No. Right. I, I, do, I do think it's an underrated run, and I would say comparable to the 90s, because I like a lot of those movies. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, 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 I mean, again, I'm, I'm in the 90s run, so I don't know if I would totally disagree. Yeah, that's I don't love what, that's kind of where I am too. Like I, I appreciate a lot of what he was doing in the '90s, but I don't love it. So it's easier for that 2010 run to compare for me. And I do like Sully, and you're all crazy. Sully's better flight. I actually, I, I think they are very fair comparable decades, and I actually I, like, I think like '90s more than you guys do. So um, even with, even still, I think very comparable. Um, so, and I think this has come to the end of our discussion today. I want to thank Paul for appearing today. I think you uh, really added a wonderful. You know, 30 minutes. <laughs> yes, this is our longest episode, and we'll probably be for a while. Thank you, Paul. Uh, thank you for so much for coming on. We'd love to have you back if there's another film that um, you're as passionate about as this one, because I think you'd always add something to the podcast. Um, thank you, Zach, for um, playing with stuffed animals and fake drinking out of a glass for 40 minutes. Um, ooh, ooh, too loud, too loud. Ooh. And as Zach said, we are going to do a quick bonus episode before we continue into October with our new topic. We will announce our new topic on the bonus episode. On our bonus episode, we were talking about uh, Tom Hanks's only film of the 2020s, Rayhound, and then uh, you know taking a quick look at like what news is out there about future projects. Um, I hope you will join us for that. I can guarantee you it'll be at least half this length. <laughs> yes, we will not be talking <laughs> this long about Rayhound. Uh, and with that, thank you, everyone. <laughs> we'll find out. Maybe we'll maybe we'll talk for four hours about Greyhound. Maybe it's the most <laughs> interesting movie of all time. Who knows? I haven't seen it yet. No, you, it is not. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can check down the description for uh, Twitters and Letterboxes, where you can find all three of us. We will put Paul's down there in case you want to follow him. He is a really good follow on Letterbox. I will highly recommend him for that. You. And thank you guys for all appearing. Um, and we will see you. Not before next week with a bonus, and then next week with our October uh, discussion topic. At some point. Have a nice day. Beautiful day in the podcast, so...